Hello and welcome to the Aerospace Ambition Podcast. I'm Kieran, joined by my co-host Marius. As aerospace engineers, we are deeply invested in the intersection of sustainable aviation, climate change and AI. In this episode, we're going to explore the science behind the observation, tracking and detection of condensation trails. The clouds which are made by aircraft predicted to contribute 1-2% to to human-induced climate change. Throughout this conversation, we'll be guided by an expert in this field. Marius, would you do us the honour of presenting our guest today? Hi Kieran and hello listeners. Today we are delighted to introduce Rémi Chevalier, a PhD student at Airbus Airline Science, specialised in aviation, data science, optimization, and avionics. Rémi recently published an interesting paper on contrail detection using satellite data and air traffic data. He even presented his findings at a recent Sustainable Skies conference. Let's dive into an insightful conversation with him. Welcome, Rémi. Thanks a lot for having me there. It's a pleasure to host you. I'd like to kick things off by starting you about this Euro Control event. I saw it in the video stream remotely, and it looked very impressive. What was it like presenting there? Actually, I've never had this kind of occasion, like a, of experience before. This is a huge, you know, huge room full of people. Um, I've been told afterwards that there were up to 4,000 people online. Uh, hopefully, they didn't tell me that before. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can only imagine. Um... Even on YouTube, I think the views, they increase by the day. So this definitely had an impact. Now, you uh, were basically representing um, a research institution, but also Airbus. In Eurocontrol, I presented the work I've done with ENAC mostly, uh, not really with uh, what I've uh, done with Airbus. So ENAC is the French Civil Aviation uh, University, and uh, my PhD in, is in collaboration between ENAC and Airbus. So... The work I've done in control observation is more about uh, scientific things that are done with ENAC. Right. And it was exactly that uh, paper or parts of the paper that you were presenting uh, on stage. What were the main findings that you presented there? M maybe one thing we need to, to all understand before even starting talking about uh, control observation is why did we do that, actually? Um, so uh, to predict control uh, formation and control climate impacts, we need... Uh, accurate forecast, weather forecasts. One of the main thing we need, um, like the weather variables, is relative humidity. Uh, relative humidity, temperature, and pressure. That's the three main, um, the three main variables that we need to, to, to accurately forecast in order to, to know which regions will be sensitive for contrail formation. Okay, so one thing, like we all use weather predictions in our daily lives. And you all know that uh, sometimes this prediction could be wrong. And um, the main problem with contrails is that we need to avoid them. But by avoiding them, we might burn more fuel. So if we avoid a contrail forming region that doesn't exist, we burn more fuel. So we have more CO2 effects and we don't reduce the climate. We might not reduce the climate impacts of contrails because there wouldn't be one. So one of the main goals of this study was to um, actually observe contrails in real life in order to be able to say, okay, we can avoid them uh, like with enough confidence so that we won't do worse than if we did nothing. That's the main question we try to, uh, to answer. And that's a very difficult question. So this paper is just the first step, just the first, uh, <laughs> first proposition and the first uh, tool 
to try to answer this question. Definitely a difficult question. And um, yet you made some progress, right, in finding some answers. So if you had to summarize it like really briefly in the last slide of your presentation, what were the findings from that research? Uh, I'd say that the, um, the findings would be that it is possible to detect contrails, match them, like identify which aircraft produce them. So this is already something very important. Um, we found also that there are um, a bunch of limitations with this method. I'm using geostationary satellite images. These images have a quite, like, not that good resolution. Don't, like, don't get me wrong on that. It's the best available at the time. But it's still sometimes not enough to, to observe accurately contrails. So in this case, we have a bunch of limitations and observing from geostationary satellite only is not enough, definitely. So we need to combine um, these images with other sources of information. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is um, that we can use the resulting uh, data to compare contrail prediction models and see, uh, is there a difference like, uh, between the prediction and the, and the observations? And um, the fourth thing is that uh, because we need to combine uh, many different sensors, many different types of observations, this will be very um, expensive and very uh, time consuming. So it's going to be very dif difficult for one uh, organization only, even if it's service, you know, to do that on its own. So we need a collaborative approach on the topic. Uh, we need to work together on this topic and share information and data in order to be able to solve this problem. So would you say that that's like, this is the novelty in your approach is the fact that you're combining real weather data, you're combining uh, contrail prediction models as well as satellite observations. Is this something that hasn't really been done before? I'd say that it has already been done uh, in some ways by uh, TLR, um, so German, mm -hmm. uh, German uh, Research Institute. Um, the, th the new thing in this approach is that I use uh, computer vision, like AI computer vision, uh, machine learning, deep learning to, to detect contrails. So it's more accurate than what they did. Um, and the, the way I, um, I track the contrails and the way I match them with the flights is quite different as well. Mm. So the, let's say that it's not a completely new approach, but the, um, like building this, uh, these three main blocks and combining them together in one, in one um, tool hasn't been done before. And um, also the fact that uh, this is just the basis for like to 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 allow for combining with other type of of sensors. Like you can add information from ground based images, like ground based cameras, from I don't know lidars, anything. So this is the new part. So I, I know that Google have a somewhat similar approach to detecting contrails is through their matching algorithms. Can you explain a bit about how your how your approach may differ from Google's? Yep, definitely. Um, so first, um, at the time I created these, uh, this algorithm, there was, there was no um, contrail observation dataset uh, freely available. So we had to train um, a computer vision model without having an actual dataset. So that's a quite tricky, oh, wow. uh, that's a quite <laughs> tricky question. So we had to generate a dataset based on uh, like a synthetic dataset. So which it means that you need to, you, we needed to uh, to create images that would look like what contrails would actually look like in reality, but without having these contrails in real life. So we used um, COSIP, which is a contrail simulation um, 
like algorithm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we use that to generate images along with um, a bunch of other um, other methods to generate images that would look like contrails, and we trained our algorithm on this. So that's the first first difference with what Google did. Then um, we are not using exactly the same kind of computer vision algorithms. Basically, what they do that they detect all the pixels that correspond to contrails. You have one image, and you tag each each um, pixel. Is it a contrail or not? Uh, my approach is quite different. In my method, basically draws a shape, a polygon around each contrail, each individual contrail. So it, in some ways, it's easier to to use this kind of information afterwards, because you know already with like individual contrails, not a bunch of contrails when they overlap and these kind of things. And um, the third thing that is very different is the way that we that I use the tracking and matching algorithms. Um, so this is quite difficult to explain without images, <laughs> but we did present it in Eurocontrol and in, um, in also in the European Co uh, Commission uh, in December. Yeah. And um, basically, I have um, a method that solves the tracking and the matching of the contrails at the same time. And each process gives information to the other in order to improve the overall result. Whereas Google, um, they have a um, more data-based approach in which uh, they look at um, they look at the traffic in real life mm. using the air traffic data. They get information on the wind and the uh, uncertainties on the wind. And given this information, they um, set up filters uh, like my aircraft was there at that time. I see a contrail there. Okay, um, I will allow for that much difference in angle and that much difference in space like in that lateral position. Like a tolerance. And they filter. Spatial and temporarily, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely. And mine is not um, a filter. It's a matching algorithm. Oh, right. It, it's a bit different in in the approach. And uh, I'm very <laughs> curious about like um, what we'll get, uh, like comparing the results in the in the next projects. Would you say that it helps or does it hinder the process of detecting two contrails which might be overlapping or like contrails overlapping with clouds because i know that's a big problem with a lot of the approaches that are out there today is that it's very difficult to distinguish a contrail from a cloud or a contrail from another contrail so does this help in the way that you're going about this like the fact that i'm using um what we call instance segmentation like drawing a polygon around the object instead of detecting the all the pixels this might help because you don't have to uh, post-process uh, to, to get, okay, I have two contrails overlapping. Okay, so which pixels is from which contrail? This is a quite tricky question to answer. So I'm not trying to answer that. I just let the algorithm get the answer training. I train it to get the answer. Yeah. So this is the first difference. And then um, my method will, uh, will allow, to, for example, if you have two contrails that are parallel, uh, this is a quite tricky case because um, uncertainties on the wind, um, if you have two aircraft flying by, um, both aircraft could have made both contrails according to the filter from Google or the one from DLR, by the way. So my method is um, taking, inf like, taking into account the information about what's around and matches the contrail with the one that is with the aircraft that the most probably created this contrail. This is, again, quite difficult to explain without images. But 
we have a, um, a higher confidence on the results. However, we also uh, miss more controls, which means that it's not like it's not meant to be used as a monitoring uh, algorithm. You know, we can't we can't monitor all controls, but we are able to select a bunch of controls on which we have a very high confidence on the tracking and matching. So currently, it's more of a research tool that will obviously be developed over time and hopefully will become more of an observational tool that maybe airlines can use or flight planners. Yeah, or MRV or these kind of things. I'd like to go one step back. We've been told that we are very technical in this podcast and we're trying everything to, to improve <laughs> that. So when you said initially you were creating this synthetic data set, right, to have something to train algorithms in the first place, then please help me understand. So COSIP, as far as I understand, gives you basically ver variables um, in a grid, right? So this is a physical model um, that is simulated. And then on the other hand, you have image data, right? And what I understood is that uh, this synthetic data was basically image data. So how does this play together? Maybe on a high level, but still for me to understand. Okay, so basically what I did, uh, COSIP is able to give you uh, positions of the contrails, of the like predicted contrails. It gives the position and it gives some information about the width, um, the optical depth, uh, and some microphysical properties like uh, ice crystal shapes, concentrations, and everything. Um, so what I would have like, uh, what I would like to do. Uh, at some point, was to to, to try to to have uh, something physics based, you know, like equations to get from COSIP to uh, images. But I did not have that. <laughs> so what I did was that I I uh, have um, like I detected like I labeled a bunch of contrails by hand on satellite images, like real ones, and I trained a very simple model to get from. Um, from microphysic properties predicted by COSIP to the actual images. So this is something very like inaccurate in terms of physics, but it is enough to train a model to detect contrails. Another question I was asking myself, you mentioned it uh, briefly in the presentation as well, was that the algorithms are agnostic to the input data, right? Uh, so they could come from, from many different um, sensors. And they are also built, you said, um, with the assumptions that sensors could improve over time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the main um, interest of this algorithm compared to the one from DLR, for example, is the fact that you can um, give it more information. Like the, the, the basis, like the, the, like it cannot work without uh, air traffic data weather data, like a wind information, and uh, geostationary satellite images. That's the principle, like that's the basis. And then if you have that, you can add information, for example, with um, if you have ground cameras, you have um, a bunch of cameras facing the sky, you detect contrails on these cameras, you can, for example, sometimes you can see contrails forming directly. You can see the aircraft and you can see the very young contrail that just formed. In this case, the matching becomes trivial. You know, you just you basically saw it happen. So if you see these kind of things, you can just take this information. Okay, I know which aircraft produced the contrail because I saw it. And you give this information to the matching algorithm and it just removes uh, unknowns from the equation. Because with the geostationary satellites, the main problem is that the resolution is quite low. So you, you can have 
up to like 20, it's, I think it's 20 minutes in average between the contrail formation and the first observation of the satellite image. So during these 20 minutes, you basically don't see, you don't know where the contrail is. Are you expecting this temporal and spatial resolution of satellites to improve? Um, so first, the temporal resolution is very good already. We have uh, one picture every five minutes over the continental US, every 10 minutes over the full disk, which means that like, we have a geostationary satellite. Geostationary satellite is a satellite that basically stays at the same place. Um, and you can take pictures um, of this same place uh, as soon as you want. So we have like as open source data, like it's free, it's uh, free to use. You can also uh, see it if you want. You can type on your brother, goes image, image reviewer. Um, you can see the same image that I'm using. Um, these images, um, they are, you have one every five minutes over the US and one every 10 minutes for the whole full disk. So this is already great. Um, the main problem is the lateral resolution because contrails are quite small objects. Um, and Go 16, which is the satellite I'm using, is already the best available. Um, the MTG satellite, Meteosat third generation, that is that was launched last year, and um, we're still waiting for the first data to to be available, but uh, it's currently under test. Um, but this is going to be the same kind of sensors that is in Go 16, so it's going to be the same resolution. At some point, it might improve, but it's not going to be this year or anytime soon. You know, that's going to be that's. That's going to take quite a long time because geostationary satellites are very expensive. Yeah, so I, I noticed that in your paper you said that, of course, you're combining your matching algorithm with the COSIP control prediction software, which is based on control physics. Um, I noticed you said that it, the matching depends on certain weather factors, so weather parameters that are input to the model. Um, and it so the, the actual prediction and the... Basically, the, the discrepancy between the matching algorithm and their contrail prediction depends on separate weather factors. So could you maybe explain what these are, so what these factors are, and maybe how well they influence the physical prediction compared to the satellite detection? Okay, uh, so first, in, in my, in my uh, study, in my paper, I had um, this, like, I combine the matching algorithm with the tracking algorithm, COSIP is not used as is. The COSIP was used to generate a training data set uh, at the beginning, but then I don't use it anymore. Oh, I see. Um, the, this uh, tracking algorithm, it's using uh, only uh, a very simplistic method uh, with um, advections. Like basically, I, I, I try to predict the positions where a contrail would be if the, the aircraft produced a contrail. I try to get rid of any uh, we like of all the um, weather information that I that might be predicted wrong. Like the relative humidity is quite uncertain, so I try to get rid of it on my observation. Okay, so <clears throat> in this case, after having this tracking and matching algorithm, uh, I can compare with COSIP. And in this case, it's quite interesting to see the results because uh, so I haven't run uh, large enough studies. So that um, we can we can state okay this is good this is bad, uh, it's only uh, I'm I'm only uh, detecting patterns for the moment. For example, um, contrail prediction will be very accurate in some cases uh, in some very very stable weather patterns when you have very stable regions with a very stable air mass. In this case, contrail prediction will be very accurate. 
And sometimes when you have uh, smaller regions, more unstable regions, contrail uh, prediction will be way less uh, accurate. So this is the kind of results you will get. And um, the, the problematic factor most of the time is relative immunity. So prediction of ISSRs, as we've spoken about previously. Um, but how about the climate impact? So the radiative forcing estimation. Is there a way to estimate radiative forcing using satellite data? Um, yep, there are some methods to do that. So <clears throat> what I've done in my study is basically just trying to get the positions of the contrails and their shape. Uh, then um, the optical properties uh, of which you can derive uh, radiative forcing, for example, um, they are much more difficult to get uh, from geostationary satellite observation. I know that some people um, in DLR and in Google have worked, have worked on a method uh, combining different sensors. They've used a low orbit satellite that can actually measure these kind of things, these kind of radiative forcing or like the optical properties. And they trained a machine learning algorithm to reproduce the results of these uh, low orbit satellites. So they have a model to estimate the radiative forcing out of GO-16 or any geostationary satellite like that. But it's not that trivial. That's quite difficult. So would, would there be a lot of uncertainties associated with that in the same way that there are with the physical modeling of radiative forcing? But I don't know, because uh, when you're looking with observation, maybe like you, you can actually quantify the, the uncertainties and... Like it's, okay. I don't know, I think it's it's going to be, uh, like you'll have less uncertainties than with uh, the predictions. And that's why I believe this is very interesting to work together because I have the positions of the contrail and their shapes um, and combining that with a, with a methods that can uh, estimate microphysics and climate impact, it's, it's going to be great. Now we've spoken in very detailed fashion about contrail observation, validation as well. Uh, but one could take one step back and think about what are the trade-offs here, right? What if we think it through, if we actually implement this in the future, then um, there are always these trade-offs. You mentioned it, uh, Remy, in the beginning, um, briefly when you said uh, there's always additional you know, fuel, hence additional CO2. So there are some trade-offs. And I've seen many presentations now, uh, all of the presentations at Eurocontrol event, for example, and I would say in every second or third, there was this 2021 uh, Lee et al. paper um, and this very famous chart that basically, you know, um, outlined the uncertainties when it comes to uh, non-CO2 effects, also contrails. And then this was heavily quoted. Now, recently, a couple of months ago, there was another paper and I'm, I'm quoting one interesting sentence here um, where basically the authors um, try to point out the uncertainties when it comes to the mitigation of non-CO2 effects. And uh, one phrase that stuck with me was that uh, there is an appetite amongst some stakeholders for non-CO2 mitigation of aviation effects on climate. Who are they referring to in your opinion? I don't exactly know who they are referring to, but I guess um, there are Many people see contrail mitigation, um, contrail avoidance as a silver bullet to, to deal with climate change uh, induced uh, by aviation. So LIRA uh, 2021, what is very important to, to, to take into account is the fact that it is fleet-based. It is, um, it is um, in, like evaluating, estimating the impacts of contrails since 1950 uh, or something. So 
it is it is an a fleet-wise approach. It is very different uh, to estimate this impact uh, over 50 years, over the whole fleet, know that this contrail impact exists, have a bunch of uncertainties that are quantified on this one. And it is very different to between that and being actually able to, to avoid contrails. Because to avoid contrails, you will be you will need to forecast uh, on a flight-wise basis the impacts of uh, contrails. So this is very different. And uh, I think this is the main difference between the two papers uh, by uh, David Lee. Um, the first one is very fleet-wise. It says, okay, there is a climate impact of contrails. And the second one is, okay, indeed, there is a climate impact of contrails. But to be able to mitigate it, we need to take into account that on a flight-wise basis, we are currently not, maybe not able to predict it accurately enough. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with him, because on the, um, on the observation side of things, we've seen that in many cases, contrail observation match with contrail prediction. But indeed, in many cases also, you can see that uh, it doesn't work. And I also see loads of people um, avoiding regions with high energy forcing, just using the output of COSIP. One of the points of David Lee is the fact that um, is energy forcing is not climate impact. It's a proxy for climate impact, but it's not enough. Sometimes even avoiding regions with high energy forcing will end up in some doing things worse than if we did nothing, if we just flown straight, okay? So this is something very important to, to me. It's trying to, uh, to, to see in which conditions are we confident enough so that we can avoid this contrail and say, okay, I'm sure of it. I won't be worse than just flying straight. Right. Very important difference to point out. What would you say are the biggest sources of uncertainty for contract prediction? I think the most important source of uncertainty is obviously the weather forecast. Um, but even like since the beginning of this talk, we've only uh, discussed about uh, ERA5 or this kind of, uh, sort of uh, information. ERA5 is reanalysis. Reanalysis, it's not something that you can use in operations. Mm -hmm. It's um, looking backward in time. What What is the best estimate of the weather you we will have? Uh, but backward in time, sure. if you try to use forecast data, but I put myself in, um, in the shoes of uh, of the airline. I need to plan my flight 12, 12 hours before takeoff, publish my flight plan uh, the latest three hours before takeoff. That's what's uh, uh, mandatory. So the, the, like, the best information I can, I can get there is the forecast three hours before takeoff. Sometimes I have a flight that is maybe, I don't know, nine hours. So trying to predict the contrail impact at the end of this flight, taking into account that the fact that you already planned your flight before the three hours before takeoff, you have a lot of uncertainties because of that. So I think that's the biggest problem. And we need to solve this uh, maybe by using tactical decisions instead of uh, like trying to, to if, you, if you can get information during your flight, like new weather data, re-optimize your flights and negotiate with the ATC with the air traffic control in order to, to change your flight and change your strategy mid-flight, maybe it can solve some of these uncertainties. But, you know, it's something quite difficult to implement. And again, 2025, 2028, it's tomorrow. So it's going to be difficult to have something working, uh, changing the air traffic control, uh, the way it works <laughs> by these dates, it's going to be difficult. So, yeah, there are loads of uncertainties. Most of them come from the weather data. And some of them will come from air traffic control. And I think that we really should tackle these 
before implementing anything. But it's possible. We're working on it. When you say you're working on it, what is the solution that is out there today that is being implemented that um, that solves this in a sufficient manner? I don't think today there is. There is one. Um, I know that, for example, flight keys is uh, avoiding uh, polygons with um, that are um, defined with the you know the highest uh, energy forcing regions. Like uh, you, you avoid the regions in which you would you would predict you would um, create contrails that are very uh, uh, very uh, high energy forcing. So this is interesting, but again, energy forcing is only a proxy to climate change, and you don't quantify like you don't compare the actual amount of CO2 you emitted, like the impact of the amount of CO2 you emitted with the, um, the reduced climate impact of the control. It's quite difficult, but um, the main advantage of uh, flight keys is that they have a very versatile um, trajectory optimization methods, uh, and they actually work with airlines, they work with ATCs, um, with network providers. So um, I think the, it's, it is very positive that they work um, towards uh, like solving the operation issues, operations, uh, like the ATC constraints, uh, the airlines constraints, but there will still be some work to do in the climate impacts part of things and the weather forecast part of things. So when you say ready to forcing and energy forcing of contrails is only a proxy for climate change, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Uh, that's basically um, a quote from David Lee's presentation in Eurocontrol. Mm -hmm. um, what it means is that uh, Radiative forcing is basically trying to to estimate the the difference in the amount of radiation that goes into Earth's atmosphere and the the amount of radiation that goes out. If you add a contrail, you modify this balance, and that's basically what radiative forcing uh, describes. It's not climate impact. Climate impact it's going to be the the long term change in temperature of the of the surface, for example. It's going from the prediction of the the shape and the properties of the contrail all the way towards predicting it's ready to forcing. So what are the instantaneous climate effects of the contrail? And then finally down to what is the actual temperature change induced by that contrail? So the global temperature change induced by a single contrail, which is of course going to be probably picocalvin, right? So tiny, tiny amounts, but still non-negligible nonetheless. I see a lot of different uncertainties, actually. The first one is on the formation of the contrail. Then there's one on the, the way it behaves, like the its evolution, only on the shape and properties. Then there's one on trying to, to, to get the radiative forcing. And then there's one to go from radiative forcing to climate impact. So that's the first problem. Like we have loads of uncertainties only on the contrary climate impact prediction. And then we have all the constraints and uncertainties related to operations and air traffic management. So these could be, I believe these could be solved uh, separately. For the moment, and that's why I believe that uh, the work with Flight Keys, Breakthrough, um, Google, and Airbus uh, is very interesting because we work on we work on solving these operation constraints and having a work on the other side of things with uh, the climate impact, uh, with so many different actors as well. It's very interesting, and I think we'll get there. You you mentioned that Airbus is involved in more of the operational feasibility side of it. So, could you maybe talk a bit more about? The exact role of Airbus in contrail avoidance, and of course, they're they're a, a manufacturer that is not not necessarily in their in their interest to get involved in routing of aircraft and the operations of aircraft. So, can you explain a bit about why Airbus is so interested in this concept? 
Um, actually, I'm just a PhD student, so I can't really talk in the name of Airbus, you know. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but I believe that it is still interesting. Like, it is interesting for Airbus to 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 have an, like to 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 work on all what's related to air traffic transport. Uh, mm. uh, air transport, sorry. So it's going to be interesting for uh, solving operational constraints, uh, adapting the aircraft to future operational constraints. Uh, it's going to be interesting also to to know if they need to equip uh, aircraft with new sensors. Yep. Um, and also because it's it's a very important topic for aviation, like civil aviation. So indeed, people like Airbus and Boeing will, will be included and will be part of it. And there are some very interesting uh, uh, European projects, for example, Siconia, the, the one I'm working with. Mm -hmm. uh, in Siconia project, uh, Boeing and Airbus are working together on this topic. I find it amazing, actually. <laughs> and the Geese project as well, which is formerly Fellow Fly. Yeah, it's not exactly it's not exactly um, on on contrails. It's not on non CO two topics. Uh, yeah, so it's the formation flying, right? More about the CO two effects, but indeed there are loads of different uh, climate impact uh, uh, related projects in which uh, different actors in both in industry and research uh, in academia are working together. And I find it great, actually. <laughs> Remy, you've mentioned flight keys several times now. And uh, it's funny because we had Alejandra on our show and we have this tradition. And the tradition is that uh, one guest passes on a question to the next. And she did pass on a question to you. So I'm going to read out the question that she is asking you. Are you ready? Yep, I am. Remy, do you, in your most honest opinion think that we will have incorporated contrail avoidance commercially in the next five years? Okay, that's a kind of tricky question. Actually, um, five years, it's tomorrow, as I said. Um, I think that we won't have like the most sophisticated, the most accurate methods for contrail avoidance and contrail mitigation available in two, two, three, five years. But I think we can still do something. Um, When, I, when we discussed a bit about that um, earlier, um, having contrail observation, um, during my study, I, I, was, I was able to, um, to detect some patterns in which contrail prediction was actually very accurate. So if we manage to do that automatically, you know, being able to, to give a score on contrail confidence, like contrail prediction confidence, we can implement something in which we only avoid the regions in which we have high confidence. This is something possible. We need to solve this question. This is something that is not implemented yet. So we need to build this method. And we also need to, um, to, um, <clears throat> to solve some operational problems. For example, in, in Europe, it's going to be very difficult to avoid contrails uh, for all aircraft, uh, even avoiding high climate impact regions uh, because, because of the way the airspace is built. Uh, or at least it will take some adjustments and it modifications of the air, tra air traffic management system. So one possible solution would be to start with less constrained airspaces above oceans, above these kind of things. So yes, Alejandra, we can in five years have contrail avoidance, but it's going to be, um, if we're not going to avoid all the, um, the high impact uh, regions and we won't do that everywhere. But I believe we can do that, and we, but we need to select high confidence regions, and we need to avoid them in not so constrained uh, airspaces. Great. 
think this was the most personal answer we had ever. Now, as this podcast will continue, of course, you also have the chance now to be spontaneous and pass on a question. Our next guest will be Joachim Mayholm. Which question comes to your mind that could be interesting to ask Joachim? Okay, so Joachim, how do you think we can overcome the, um, the operational constraints that are involved in um, in uh, contrail avoidance uh, procedures and contrail avoidance systems and also uh, deal with uh, the uncertainties of the weather, even if it's not exactly related to our field? Very uh, technical question to round off a highly, highly technical discussion. Um, but I think it's been extremely valuable for people who are somewhat versed in this field already. And hopefully we've looped back to the, the lower level fundamentals for people who are just interested and trying to learn a bit more about this field. So I think with that, we can round off the session today. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us, Remy. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Remy. I recommend everyone to watch your presentation at Eurocontrol. We're going to link it in the show notes, the precise position where you spoke. Other than that, Kieran, Remy, thank you so much and talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.